listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I'll be speaking with author Clayton Delry about his book, Out for Queer Blood, The Murder of Fernando Rios and the Failure of New Orleans Justice. Clay is a retired teacher from the Louisiana School for Math, Science, and the Arts. His other book, The Upstairs Lounge Fire, was named Book of the Year by Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities in 2015. Welcome to the show, Clay. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, let's start off, if we can, with a language clarification. When you and I were young, and just by complete coincidence, we were in high school at the same time, Uh at the same high school. When you and I were young, uh, and, and in the case of when this book starts, the time period, Calling someone queer was meant to be derogatory. It was extremely derogatory. It was like the worst thing you could call someone. What does that word convey now? Well, some people still feel that way. Um, And um, I've got some friends um, who tend to be a little bit older than us, but who who still think of queer as a really derogatory term and are just horrified when it's used. Um, A lot of younger people... um, have reclaimed it, and they use it as a badge of honor. Um, so, uh, or they refer to the queer community in part because it's easier to say one word than to go through LGBTQIA. You know, right, um, right. just take everyone in with one brief word and um, and attempt to rob it of its former uh, power by using it as a badge of pride. Okay, well, I wanted to kind of talk about that, and we'll touch on that, I guess, as we go through. And and your book does a really great job of, and and it's kind of my next question, Fernando Rios is a gay man from Mexico who's murdered uh, in the city in 1958. Your book doesn't come out until 2017. Mm -hmm. How did you go about researching, you know, all the information that is in there Mm -hmm. from such a long time ago? Well, um, I knew very little about uh, Fernando Rios as a person. I, I still do. He's almost a stranger to me um, because he was a visitor from out of town and from a foreign country. Um, he had no friends here. He had no allies here. All the information that was readily available was tied up with either the trial or the police investigation, and that wasn't very much. So in the absence of being able to tell the story of his life, I had to um, tell the story of what life was like um, in New Orleans in 1958, um, both as a whole and in particular what it was like for um, for gay men at that time. And so I spent um, an entire summer in mostly in the New Orleans Public Library reading newspapers from 1950 to 1960. Um, And I was, of course, looking for stories that had to do with with gay people, but I was also looking for stories that seemed somehow related. And um, it's kind of important to realize that at the time of the murder, which today would be called a hate crime, although that language didn't exist then, there were a lot of other changes going on. Schools were being desegregated. Public facilities were being desegregated. Um, there were, was a lot of question about what role women would play. You know, would they stay in the house or would they enter the workplace? It's happening in the middle of the Red Scare with McCarthyism going on. So um, 
one of the things that I realized as I was reading the papers was that this was a decade in many ways defined by fear. Um, fear of outsiders who were going to come in and somehow threaten um, our way of life. Uh, there was a lot of anti-Mexican um, prejudice at the time and, and a lot of fear about what was happening with people coming across the border. So, um, and, and the more I read about the 1950s, the more it began to strike me that there were a lot of parallels with, with what's happening in the 2015s and 2020s. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned in the book that, that I, I was not familiar with is uh, we had the Red Scare, but we also had the Lavender Scare. We yes. had the Lavender. Talk, talk a little bit about what that was uh, and what was going on in that regard. Well, McCarthy was um, all about fear of communists infiltrating the nation in general and government in particular. Um, but there was an attempt to link the communist population with the uh, gay population. And there was the, the assumption that if you were one, you were probably the other as well, or at least had leanings in that way. So that at the same time that lots of people were being purged from jobs because of alleged communist sympathies, uh, a, lot, a lot more were being purged from jobs because of um, the belief or the suspicion, or in some cases, the proof that they were homosexual. This tended to fall most heavily on, on um, gay men, um, but it did happen to women as well. You know, you do a good job in the book of laying out, at the beginning of the book, what the environment was like in the 50s, and you used a term that I was unfamiliar with, and I may even mispronounce it, stochastic terrorism? Stochastic terrorism, yeah. yes. Could talk about what that is. It seems so relevant now, but it was obviously relevant then as well. Well, it's, it's extremely relevant. It's, um, it's based on a mathematical principle, and... Um, I was an English major, so I'm a little bit out of my depth here. But the stochastic principle is that certain things can be predicted in the aggregate, but that you they can't be predicted with any kind of specificity. So if you're rolling dice in a craps game, the stochastic principle tells you that you'll roll a lucky seven within a certain percentile range, but it can't tell you that it's going to happen on the fourth try or right. on the eighth try. Or if you and I are both at the craps table, one of us will uh, be able to roll the lucky seven, but statistics are unable to predict which one of us it would be. So stochastic terrorism um, is a concept for essentially <laughs> remote control terrorism. Um, it happens when people with public forums choose a population or a person to demonize and do it repeatedly. Um, and if it happens often enough and is done with enough conviction, conveyed conviction, Sooner or later, what we would turn a lone wolf terrorism is going to attempt to take that person or that population out. And, um, and in the book, you point out that when you laid out all the, the environment in the 50s, the anti-gay environment, all the hostility, all the fears or whatever, out of this arises the possibility, and we see this today as well, that somebody will act upon that uh, and commit a crime. Oh yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about the specifics of the Rios case, if okay. we can. Okay. Certainly. 
three Tulane students, John Farrell, David Drennan, and Alberto Calvo, uh, end up being charged with Rios's murder. Can you set up for us a little bit how these three end up intersecting with Rios? Um, it was early in the fall semester, and um, these three young men uh, were looking for something to do on a Saturday night. And uh, they went to a movie at a movie theater in the French Quarter that no longer exists, and, and they went out to dinner. And periodically throughout the evening, one of these men, John Farrell, kept floating the idea, oh, we should roll a queer. You know. Though you and I know what that term means because of our age. Yeah. Tell us, for, yeah. for perhaps younger folks, what role means, what you're saying you're going to roll someone. Yeah, I've, I've encountered people who said, what, you, they were going to wrap them in toilet paper? I mean, no. Right. Um, right. no to roll, uh, the verb to roll was used very much the same way we use the verb to mug today. It meant to beat somebody up and rob him. Okay. Um, and, and John Farrell wanted to do this, not because they needed money. Um, it was just, you know, he thought it would be an entertaining way to spend um, the rest of the evening. Um, and the other two initially resisted, but he kept proposing it and eventually kind of wore them down. And um, So they go to the French Quarter. They go to the French Quarter, and John Farrell, who had only been in town a few weeks, mm -hmm. um, and this is long before the internet, before where you could Google gay bars in New Orleans right. and get a list. Um, somehow, he knew that Cafe Lafitte in Exile was a gay bar. Um, and that continues to pique my curiosity. Yeah, yeah. Um, how a 19-year-old man who'd only been in the city for a few weeks would know where to go with well, that I'm specificity. Gonna ask, yeah, I'm going to ask you a little bit about him uh, mm -hmm. as we get into the facts a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So he finally convinces them, okay, let's go do this. Let's go do this. Okay. And so they get there, and by prearrangement, the other two waited outside while he went inside to make the acquaintance of somebody, to chat him up, um, and then to leave presumably with, uh, if not the promise, at least the suggestion that if they left together, there would be you know, sexual activity at right. the end of the evening. And he happened to sit down next to Fernando Rios, um, who was from Mexico City. He worked as a tour guide, and he was in... Um, New Orleans for business reasons. He was leading a group of doctors on and their wives on a vacation to New Orleans. So uh, he was in there and... Um, but before he actually meets Rios, he ends up in a conversation with another gentleman, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, before John Farrell met Fernando Rios, uh, an, an elderly man in his 40s <laughs> um, kept coming on to John Farrell. And, right. and Farrell was kind of pushing him off and just generally indicating he wasn't interested. Um, and Fernando Rios saw this very handsome young man. Um, the, the photographs show that John Farrell um, was quite good looking. Strikes up a conversation with him. Um, and tries to explain, oh, well, that man's, you know, that man's a homosexual. Um, and um, John Farrell and Fernando Rios had a conversation that I'm guessing lasted 20 or 30 minutes, um, during which, by John Farrell's own account, Fernando Rios behaved as a perfect gentleman. 
Um, he was asking questions. They were talking about art. He never did anything that seemed to make John Farrell uncomfortable. But ultimately, by prearrangement, um, they left the bar, and John Farrell actually offered to give Fernando Rios a ride back to his hotel. Um, he led Rios into Père Antoine Alley, which in the 1950s was not the brightly lit open place it is today. It was very dark, and French Quarter residents would park their cars in the alley, so um, there were a lot of blind spots. And uh, he led him into the alley, and... Um, well, this was a pretense, though, because he really wasn't going to look for his car. I mean, he claimed he was no, looking he for his car. No, he, he, he claimed he was looking for his car, and he couldn't find it. It right. was parked behind the cathedral. Right. They were at the cathedral. Right. Um, he, uh, he led Rios into the alley. He later claimed that Rios made an indecent advance, um, and so he hit Rios. Um, at first, he claimed he'd only done it once, then he claimed he'd only done it twice. Um, but Rios was left a bloody mess on the sidewalk. Um, the other two, um, Alberto Calvo and David Drennan, had no direct role in the beating so far as we know. But what they did was, by prearrangement, one was at one end of Père Antoine Alley and one was at the other, so that if Rios had attempted to run, his escape would have been cut off. Right. And then they do rob him, right? They, they rob him. And that becomes significant as the story develops, but they do rob him. Yes. And they leave him lying on the, on the alley floor, mm -hmm. bleeding. And uh, he was found the next morning by uh, a man who um, placed newspapers in vending machines. Mm -hmm. And one of those vending machines was at the head of Père Antoine Alley. And so he saw this man lying on the sidewalk, and a priest was coming out of the rectory, so he enlisted the priest's aid. They called the police. But Fernando Rios died um, later that day of his injuries. Right. And you make re reference to this, and everybody in law school learns about it in their first year of law school. Rios apparently had what's called an eggshell cranium. Yes. So that a, a punch to his head was much more devastating, perhaps, than it would have been to somebody else. Yes, and that, that played, um, it played more of a role in the trial than it should have. Right. Um, his skull was abnormally thin, and skull fractures did lead to his death. Um, the defense attorneys, in their opening arguments, called him a medical freak. Right. And said that his death uh, would not have happened um, basically to a normal person. Right. But as you know, and as I learned, um, the eggshell cranium rule is that you take you take the victim as you, you find, find him. him. Correct. So right. um, I'll use an, a, an analogy that I used in the book. Um, if um, you and I got in a fight and I punched you in the stomach and you were hemophiliac and the punch to the stomach caused you to have an internal hemorrhage, my defense could not be, I didn't know he was a hemophiliac. Right, right. Well, let's, let's jump back a little bit. So the three go back after the night. They've done this. They go back to Tulane. And through, through a process that we may skip over with, but they basically admit to some folks that they did it. Mm -hmm. And then they end up turning themselves in? Yes. Okay. But you make it clear in the book that unlike, I guess, anybody else who might have been turned in for murder, they were not treated like a, like normal murder suspects. No, they were, um, instead of being put in central lockup or, you know, any kind of jail cell, they were put in the prison hospital. 
um, to keep them away from the rougher elements. And and the media coverage, you also make this point, and maybe it's because they were Tulane students or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, was uh, pretty deferential at the outset. But it also, and talk a little bit about this, continued the dehumanization of Rios, yes. right? Um, the media... Um, the the media coverage, and primarily what I was looking at was newspaper coverage, um, was, yes, highly deferential. You know, I, I read lots of articles about other physical attacks on people, and typically the people who beat up an old man with a pipe or beat up a waitress and stole $40 or something, you know, there are lots of stories like that. Typically the people who perpetrated the crimes were referred to as thugs. Um, or suspects. Um, those words were never applied to the people responsible for Fernando Rios's death. They were always referred to in the media as the students. Um, and Rios, and this became increasingly true as the trial went on, Rios was very often not called by his own name in newspaper articles about his death. He was often referred to as the Mexican or the Mexican who made an indecent advance. Um, So um, it was very easy to see that um, the newspapers were trying to set up public opinion to be in the favor of the people who had killed this Mexican homosexual. Well, and and as I understand it, or at least when I read it, this is what I thought, it fit into the narrative that was going on at that time in society. Oh, yes. Um, Typically, newspaper coverage at the time, if it was was talking about uh, gay people in society, it was discussing them in terms of people who hung around schools to try and seduce young boys or people who tried to molest them in restrooms. Um, the, uh, the three defendants in the case were all 19, 20 years old, so they were a little bit more than boys, but they were still pretty young men, and the fact that they were continually referred to as students had the effect of making them seem much more vulnerable than they actually were. Now, the trial begins, all three are charged with murder initially. Mm -hmm. Trial begins in January of 1959, and a name that popped up that most New Orleanians will be familiar with almost had a role in the trial, and that's Jim Garrison. Yeah. And what? so he was going to represent the Rios family? He had been retained by Fernando Rios's mother, I think with some financial help from the uh, Mexican Council here in New Orleans, to assist with the um, defense, the prosecution, excuse me, because the... The uh, the Mexican consulate had been following the story, and because of the way Rios was continually being called the Mexican, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, and that was tying into the idea that there was this what they used to call a wetback invasion. Mm-hmm. They were afraid that he wouldn't get a fair trial, and Jim Garrison was then an up and coming attorney, and he had a good reputation. Um, so he was retained to help assist with the prosecution, but then on the very morning that the trial was supposed to start, he said, oh, by the way, I have the flu, and he dropped out never to be seen again. Well, until maybe until, later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> after becomes, the trial. Yeah, when he becomes the district attorney, right? Um, well, th- then, yeah, he ultimately became the district attorney, and it fell upon 
uh, his office, um, the the three defendants were acquitted in the murder trial. Right. And then uh, Richard Dowling, who was then district attorney, tried to um, prosecute them for robbery because robbery was not a charge that the first jury had been asked to um, right. review. Um, and uh, there were claims that this was double jeopardy, but it went to the Louisiana Supreme Court, and the Louisiana Supreme Court said, no, it's possible to commit more than one crime at a time, and this, this, crime, was, this crime was not adjudicated in the first trial. Right. Um, you're clear to have a second trial for um, robbery. Well, by this time, Richard Dowling had lost his office, and Jim Garrison had been elected to replace him. And Garrison was less than enthusiastic in pursuing the robbery charge, so it just basically never happened. Well, let's jump back a little bit to the trial itself. As I understand it from the book, the defense, representing the three guys, um, didn't so much deny what occurred. Instead, they pointed out Rios' sexuality and basically put that on trial before the jury. Oh, yes, that's that's very clearly the case. Um, they... Um, they claimed it was self-defense, that um, John Farrell had absolutely no choice but to beat this man up because the man had made an in indecent advance. Now, an hour earlier, he was sitting in a gay bar and an elderly man in his early, in his 40s, um, boy, that really rankles, uh, <laughs> this, this older man was making passes at him and he was perfectly fine with deflecting those in a nonviolent manner. Um, the idea that Farrell had to do this in self-defense kind of ignores the whole um, the whole reason this happened to begin with, sure. which which was that he had gone into that bar looking for someone who would make an advance. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, okay? So the, well, I want to make sure it's clear for listeners. So they do get acquitted. They are acquitted. And, and then the robbery charges are raised. Does that ever get tried? No, the robbery charges never were. The, the, there was ultimately, like six years later, there was a, a court hearing where they pled guilty to some very minor charge, and they were given a six-month sentence, which was suspended. Right. So they never did any jail time. Well, one of the things, of course, that we touched on this earlier that puzzled me about Farrell's behavior was this idea that, that you know, he, he knew where a gay bar was, he went in anyway. He, I think he actually had a drink with somebody, if he I had, remember. Yeah, the, yeah the he, had, um, he bought himself um, a beer, and then he let Fernando Rios buy him a second. Yeah. Um, Talk about what this might, you do this a little bit in the book, and we don't want to go too far with it, but what this might suggest about Farrell. Well, if all he wanted to do, if all he wanted to do right. was to beat, beat, some up, guy up, right? beat some guy up, he didn't have to go in the bar. The three, he and his two friends could have stood outside waiting for somebody to come out alone, preferably someone older or weaving a little bit, indicating that he was drunk. And they, they could have, you know, followed this guy and beat him up on any dark street. Um, and the quarter in general was not as lit well then as it is today. Well, although half the lights in the quarter are out today. Um, <laughs> that's been in the paper recently. Um, instead, he intentionally went in and, and used his face and body as bait. Um, it wasn't enough to beat up somebody he had to be acquainted with him first. 
he had to, you know, kind of dance on the edge and have a conversation and indicate an interest and, and try to spark an interest in the person he was talking to. Um, and so that really went way and above beyond the call of duty if all he wanted to do. And it, it you know, I, I don't want to psychoanalyze somebody from beyond the grave. He died a number of years ago. But um, it suggests it suggests a deeper conflict within him. Right. And and this is pretty common among people um, who take public positions against LGBT rights. A lot of times we find out later that they've been doing something questionable in public restrooms or that they hire rent boys to carry their luggage when they go on vacation or you know, things right. like that. Right. Um, we hear that often with uh, ministers, uh, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, all right. So let me let me ask you to do this because we're going to run out of time here in just a little bit. So let's fast forward. You, the book, for those that are listening, does a great job of weighing out the environment, not only nationally but in New Orleans during these times. You and I both live in the city. Mm -hmm. So let's talk. Let's bring this thing forward. And can I get you to read? Um, perhaps something from the book that talks about New Orleans today yes. and the environment today. Um, yes. Hold and on. if you need to set it up, you know, with any comment or anything like that as to what it is, that's fine, too. Um, as I was researching the book, it occurred to me that um, a lot of things... Um, in some ways, New Orleans is still very much like it was in the 50s, and in some ways, it has changed a lot. And one thing that we really didn't talk about much was that the mayor at the time, Chet Morrison, was on what he engaged in what he called a drive against the deviates, and he was trying to eliminate homosexuals from the city. And this is part of when we talk about the environment that you sketched out that was going on in the 50s. Mm -hmm. This is part of it on the more localized level. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and in fact, uh, as the trial was progressing, the same week that the trial was progressing, the city council was voting on a number of uh, laws that were very hostile to the gay population and were designed specifically to try and make them uh, leave. It didn't work. Um, so, and, and Morrison also was against desegregation and um, several other things. So, um, at the end of the book, I talk about the similarities and the differences between New Orleans in the 21st century and in the 1950s. Today, Mayor Morrison would be horrified to know that same-sex couples are allowed to marry. My husband and I had a ceremony attended by nearly 90 people. Our parents attended and were proud to do so. Eventually, he and I moved to the same middle-class neighborhood in New Orleans where my parents grew up and where my grandparents lived when I was a child. It was all white and putatively all straight then. Now from my windows, I can see homes occupied by a collection of families from the 21st century. Most of the other couples in our block are straight, but two of them are gay, and one of those gay couples is raising a daughter. In the course of my daily walks, I pass homes occupied by white families, black families, Latinx families, Asian families, and interracial families. Though the neighborhood and much of the city is everything that Morrison and his cronies saw as a threat, the result is really not all that different from the 1950s. The neighborhood is still middle to upper middle class, 
and the houses I see on my daily walks appear almost identical to me as a man of 60 as they did when I was a boy of six. My neighbors and I are friendly when we see each other on the street. We invite each other for coffee and cake. We admire each other's gardens. We pet each other's dogs, and we coo over the babies. I live in short in a New Orleans that is simultaneously very different from and very much the same as the New Orleans that killed Fernando Rios. It is a New Orleans that once reviled him, but in which he would now have a place. I wish that he might have lived to see it, and I hope that in death he is at peace. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, this is the Writer's Forum, and I've been speaking with author Quayton Delry about his new his book, his new book, Out for Queer Blood, The Murder of Fernando Rios and the Failure of New Orleans Justice. Quay, is there a, a website or a social media site that folks can go to to find out more about you, find out more about um, the book? At ClaytonDelery.com. Okay, great. Well, it's good having you on the show. Oh, it's good being here. Thanks. Thanks.